DEFCOM Podcast presents the Fireside Cast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to an episode of our DEFCOM Podcast series, bringing you the DEFCOM experience year-round. This time, it's one of our Fireside Casts, and I'm super excited to have here with me Jens Begemann, founder and still CEO of VUGA, <laughs> the number one mobile game company from Germany. Hi, Jens, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Lars. Thanks for the warm intro. <laughs> Jens, you were uh, giving a presentation on the history of VUGA, I think, at DEF CON before, but I thought to get started, would you maybe give us a quick rundown again so our listeners get a bit of a background on you and the company? Yes, yeah. So I started VUGA in early 2009 um, together with my two co-founders, uh, Patrick and Philip. And um, we initially focused only doing social games on Facebook.com. About two years later, we moved to mobile, two or three years later, early 2012, very successfully. We saw a lot of growth over the years. And then when we went into a phase of crisis, and that is also what my DEFCOM talk was about two years ago, where around 2015, 16, we were really um, struggling. And the result of that was a, a wrong strategic decision from my side. We um, went into too many genres at the same time instead of really focusing. And then 2016, we decided to focus back again on casual games. That's what we are good at. And then um, about yeah, two and a half years from now, um, we decided to only focus story-driven casual games. So that's what we do now. And uh, I think we're really, really good at that, uh, doing games for an audience that is 80% female, average age is in the late 40s, um, especially our hidden object games like June's Journey are very successful. So yeah, we're really good at that. And um, we have seen strong growth in the last few years. So in the last um, three years, our revenue has grown fourfold. Um, in the last 18 months, it has more than doubled. Um, so yeah, very happy with the current trend. And um, 18 months ago, um, we as shareholders and founders, we sold um, VUGA to Playtaker. So VUGA is now part of the bigger Playtaker family. Was that, I mean, we, we talked in the past uh, a couple of times, I mean, you and me about this, and was the um, selling the company to Playtika, was that uh, kind of a result of, uh, you know, turning around the company after that uh, challenging phase? Or did you always plan to do this, um, but originally had it in mind to do it earlier? Um, no, we didn't necessarily have it in mind to do it earlier, but we came out of this crisis and it was 2018. We were growing strong and really, really on a good track. And I thought about, okay, wh what should I do? And um, the games market is consolidating. And I asked myself, are we big enough alone, right? We, we back then had about 200 employees, um, dozens of millions of revenue per year, but not hundreds of millions. And uh, if, if I looked forward into the future in this consolidating market, is it really a good place to do that alone or should we be part of something bigger? And, and I thought being part of a bigger group of companies would make us stronger. That was the first reason. And the second reason was obviously we have venture capital investors. And uh, after nine years, it's a period where um, yeah, you have to do something as a founder. Either you do an IPO or um, you find some late stage investors that uh, basically buy out your early stage investors or you sell the whole company. I think those were the key considerations and all of that combined led me to the conclusion that, yeah, now is the right time and now is the right time to um, sell VUCA to Playtika and I'm very happy 
uh, with how the last 18 months have gone. They are really good home for us. Oh, it sounds great. So what what has changed since then? Is there anything where you would say like, uh, you know, on, on, on the positive side or maybe even like things that where we like, where you thought like, okay, there was a little bit of, uh, of um, you know, issues in the beginning and then you worked it out. So how does that, how did that relationship grow in the last 18 months? Yeah, I mean, obviously we as VUGA, we have always evolved over the last decade. I think any company should always improve and evolve. But if I look at the development of the last 18 months, I think about 80% of what has happened is exactly the same as what we have, would have done as an independent company. Um, 10% roughly is different because we have to do it differently. These are things like financial reporting, now being part of a bigger company or legal, these things that you just have to do. And about 10% is different because we want it to be different based on Platica learning. So um, those are, it's not the majority, but it's really these 10% are important. <laughs> so we have a very healthy exchange with other companies and other teams from the Platica group. And um, it's especially related to live operations on how to run events, how to constantly improve our games. And um, also, I think um, kind of the mindset of how big a team can be. I think we have in the past thought that, well, maybe a game team, if it's uh, 30 people or 35, that's big enough, even for a really big game. But uh, I have now kind of realized that having much bigger teams of 50, 60, or sometimes over 100 people uh, working on one single mobile game is actually a good idea because that additional, uh, these additional kind of resources and additional people really make your game better and bigger and thereby attract a bigger audience. So that's also something that you have applied to VUGA since then, so that in general teams are getting a little bit larger within VUGA? Yes, yeah, especially for June's Journey, which is our biggest um, team. Um, this uh, is now there, It's now more than 50 people just working on the game, and then we have external uh, teams working on it, so outsourcing partners for art and graphics and external localization. And then internal, we obviously have um, <clears throat> marketing there and community management and there's customer care. So if you count everything together, I would assume that we have 100 people working full time on this one mobile game. June's journey. Uh, that's actually a pretty, pretty large team. I mean, personally, I have made that experience of coming from a, an environment where, like you said, 30, 40 people were like the maximum, usually even for the bigger games. Uh, and now I'm more like in the, uh, you know, AAA console development uh, side of things. And there, like teams get like super large. And uh, it's quite a change from, you know, <laughs> what I've experienced in the past. So I can imagine that uh, this <laughs> takes a while to adapt, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it does. And therefore, we didn't want to do it overnight. It's very gradual, because otherwise, I think the growing of the team actually brings more downsides than positive. Are you actually, um, between Vuga and the other companies within the Playtica family, are you doing some kind of co-development where you say, like, okay, certain elements are done in your team, and then there's other teams that contribute to that? Mm, so Playtica has a number of uh, central teams that build uh, a platform and build tools. And this platform um, is then used by some other teams. And you don't have to use the whole platform. You can use parts of the platform. And there's quite a big of heavy investment going on um, there on the Playtica side. Um, we don't use a lot of it yet. Um, for us, it has been more about exchanging of learnings and know-how. And this has been very beneficial. 
Well, it sounds sounds really good. That sounds like a good match because sometimes when you have those uh, you know acquisitions going on, and you know you don't always hear only positive uh, feedback about it. But I think it really uh, seems like a good fit between Platika and, and Vuga, which is great, obviously. So um, I now need to, of course, tackle a topic that uh, you know me personally and also our listeners, I guess, are interested in. So we recently decided to leave Vuga after mm -hmm. all those years. I think it was eleven years and six months, as far as I'm aware, roughly. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So first of all, how does that feel after all those years? I mean, what do you do now, and and <laughs> and what could possibly be better than being at the helm of a great mobile games company? Yeah, I, I think it's. I thought about this for a really long time, um, many many months at the end of last year, and um, I, I'm to the correct decision. And um, it now feels really good because I'm sure it's the right decision. Um, therefore, it feels good. So for me, what will I do now? Um, well, even before VUGA, uh, I was working at a startup here in Berlin that was all also extremely intense. So uh, in the last 19 years, um, I didn't really have a lot of time to take a break. <laughs> yeah. um, I've, I've done my 10-day vacation uh, or something like this, but realistically, it has never really been longer without interruption. So this summer, I will take a break. And then after the summer, I will start to do um, angel investments. I want to help um, founders of uh, companies, not just games, actually uh, mostly outside of games, um, with, yes, with money, but mostly also with my experience from the last 10 to 20 years. And I hope I can contribute and make uh, young startups and tech startups, especially consumer-oriented startups, more successful. And, um, yeah, on the VUGA side, um, it feels good. It feels a bit like, um, I think, uh, handing over... Um, okay, no, not handing over. That's the wrong word. It really feels a bit like, okay, you have a child and that child gets older and is now out of school and uh, goes somewhere else, living in a different city, but hopefully will visit you once in a while. So you're sending <laughs> Vuga off to college, I guess. In that case. Yes. <laughs> yeah, a, something like this. And, it's um, funny, funny you really, say that. <laughs> and I'm happy about um, my management team is really, really good. Vuga is really the strongest it has ever been in terms of um, employee happiness and employee engagement. We measure that every month. It's the highest it has ever been. And um, the, the strategy is right. Business is successful. And also my successor, Nai Chang, uh, is a really good job over the last couple of months getting onboarded. And uh, therefore, I'm very optimistic for the next years of Vuga. So you're currently working in parallel with Nai to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, migrate a lot of the things that you've been doing i assume yes correct yeah. i mean for since you had to smile a little bit when you said uh you know you, you're gonna take a break in the summer i guess uh given everything that's going on this year you probably haven't picked the perfect summer for taking a longer break in terms of you know what's going on around you but it's, uh, it's, it's all right we will just go to the north of germany to the sea and uh, spend a few weeks there and that's enough so like <laughs> like all the other million people yeah <laughs> They're <laughs> probably going to do the same. Yeah. But but I booked it already uh, quite a while ago, so uh, it was not last minute. Just an apartment close to the sea for a few weeks. That's enough. Well, that sounds, sounds really good. Makes me jealous a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Definitely. But I can imagine after all those years that, you know, taking a little bit of a break uh, makes sense. But the way I know you, I guess you probably won't be able to sit still for long. Um, and uh, that's why I think, that, you know, the, your angel investments that you were talking about are uh, definitely going to keep you busy, I guess. But are you looking to kind of, you know, spread out your um, your things a little bit going forward? Um, or are you at some point, you know, looking about a, you know, fixed role again where you really, you know, build something like you did at Vuga? Well, I've, I've decided for myself that I want to focus on angel investment till the end of 2021. So the next one and a half years, um, I want to make maybe 10 investments or so, help young founders, help entrepreneurs, maybe also not so young founders, maybe also uh, uh, experienced founders can benefit still from my experience. I don't know. Let's see. Um, and then I will see what if I want to do that permanently. Is that my life for the next decade? Or do I want to do something different? But I don't want definitely don't want to rush it. Or you can you can always go to Shark Tank, you know, and share your experience <laughs> there. <laughs> they, I think mm. they didn't really have somebody with a lot of games background, so you know, it might be an option. Just a recommendation yeah. from my side. <laughs> Not no, so sure about that. <laughs> no, I wasn't really serious about it, but um, yeah, I think you, you will definitely find something. That, and from my point of view, your experience is, uh, is super valuable, even to founders that have been in the business for a long time. Uh, so uh, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people in the industry are going to benefit from your insights, and uh, you know, hopefully, are able to, with your help, then grow their their companies, found their companies, and then grow their companies into something that really you know makes an impact on the market. So Jens, at Vuga, aside from the games you made, company culture has always been one of the core topics that you cared about and as far as i know you've always been at the center of that somehow you've been the voice and the face of um, that uh, to the inside and to the outside so what did you do or are you doing right now to ensure your legacy at vuga mm -hmm. and the continuation of that company culture focus that you always had yeah so first of all i think company culture is incredibly important um, we don't have any factories we don't have any mines that we harvest from it's all of what we do is basically people working together to create improve and publish games and um, this working together is uh, very important because uh, games consist of so many aspects from art sound game design programming writing um, how you market it how you talk to the community all of these aspects that there is not um, one single craft that can do it alone. And therefore, working together is really important. And all of this means a strong company culture will help you and will benefit you tremendously. And when a company starts, in my experience, almost always the company culture is defined by the actions of the founders, and not by what the founders write on paper, what the company culture should be, but actually how they behave, what the founders do, how they behave. And that is, I think, the same what we did at, at VUGA at the beginning. We thought about a number of things that were important to us um, to treat everybody with respect, to have a very international team coming together in Berlin, to be very open-minded, uh, many, 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 many things, have a strong focus on internal communication and thoughtful communication, sharing everything we do, being very collaborative. Um, and these are the things that are and have been important to us back then. And now that VUGA has grown, we're now well over 200 people, I think the company culture is actually deeply ingrained in most of those people. And um, therefore, I'm not really worried that me leaving will damage it. 
I think it will evolve, and I think actually it should evolve. But uh, I think it's not dependent on one single person anymore. That's not the case anymore. Well, I guess company culture in general always, like you said, needs to evolve and, and, and will evolve if you want it or not. <laughs> My experience, like the culture in a company is always, um, you know, even if it's, though it starts with, with certain people, in that case, you and the other founders, you know, at some point, uh, you know, there's new uh, influences coming in by, from new people that you hire and they all have an impact usually. But uh, I would agree that, you know, if something is deeply ingrained in, in the company, um, then uh, they will probably carry it forward. But was it a challenge for you to, at that point, kind of let go? Or did you actively delegate certain, I would say, organizational development initiatives or culture-related initiatives to people that you've worked with on that before? Um, yes. Uh, so over the years, um, it has, I would say, the, the sharing of our culture has broadened a lot. So if we think of Our culture, obviously, it has many, 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 many aspects. But I would say the three ones that we also kind of communicate um, to the outside, or actually four. One is our core value is thoughtful communication. This is we share very actively between each other what we have learned, what we're thinking, what our opinions are, um, how the company is doing. And this is now, I would say, institutionalized. We have a Monday morning stand up with the whole company where everybody comes together. Or uh, in this case, now we have a live stream <laughs> where that is shared. We have many, many other formats multiple times per week where we share information broadly. And then there's a lot of information sharing using tools uh, internally and newsletters and collaborative sites, etc. And then We have um, three more things that we also communicate to the outside when we hire empl employees. That is, um, the first one really is that we are truly focused on our vision. So our vision to do story-driven casual games. And this is something that we repeat internally multiple times. And um, we now, I think, have it deeply ingrained in hundreds of people. So this will definitely not go away. <laughs> this is our strategy to focus on storytelling and to do games that combine great gameplay with great stories. Um, then the second one is Masters of Our Craft. So I earlier talked about all of these different crafts that we have from game design to art, to writing, to programming, to the production of the games, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we now have um, hats for all of these disciplines. So it's part of our organizational structure. We have a head of art, head of writing, etc. So I think this is also something that isn't relying on me anymore. It's that, that's long gone. And then the last one is that we have a collaborative working environment, a very collaborative working environment. And this is also something that is not dependent on me anymore um, because this is actually happening um, in the teams, between the different teams and one or two levels below me. So... Um, so having said that, our core value and then these uh, three aspects of how we describe our culture to new employees we hire, none of these depend on me anymore. And uh, therefore, I'm uh, very confident that me leaving will not uh, hurt them or bring them in peril. Well, I guess it gives you a good feeling um, and kind of peace of mind, you know, leaving knowing that the company is in good hands and that people will carry forward what you started together, I guess. Yeah, yes. 
I mean, culture is always a um, you know very important topic. I agree with you there. And um, just briefly talking about the current situation. I mean, the the COVID nineteen crisis and, and lockdowns and the impact it had on different companies. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that um, it had an impact on how you know the company culture was evolving, or did you know the company culture you built with uh, you know the team over years? Did it help you in that period? Um, yes, I think it helped. Um, I think in this um, phase where with very short term notice, almost immediately, we all moved to work from the uh, work from home. Um, this is a phase where obviously the individual responsibility of the individual people uh, is very high and you need to rely on them that they will do their job even if nobody's walking around the office and looking over their shoulder and you it's not really suitable for micromanagement and therefore we don't do i mean we never i think did heavy micromanagement at least we try to avoid it as much as we can and uh, all of these things definitely helped um and then I think we tried to do a number of things over the last um, few months to, well, go through this pandemic a bit better and a bit easier. So there are a number of measures we took as a company to try to address it. Do you think it will change the way you collaborate in the long term? Probably, yes. Yeah. So um, I expect... I, I know that my successor and I and my management team, they will have a discussion this summer. What does it mean for VUGA going forward? What does it mean in terms of working from home? Should it be a permanent part of how we work together? And how do you collaborate if some people are in the office and some people are at home? And um, I think this is an aspect where our culture will evolve. Because over the last um, 10 years, We had everybody in the same office, in the same building. So we have over 40 nations um, working at VUGA. And all of uh, these people from all, all of these over 40 nations are in the same building in the heart of Berlin. And this has a lot of benefits. Um, but obviously, um, we haven't had a, a kind of uh, an experience of a lot of people working from home. And now we have that. Um, we Since a few months, we try to support people with that. For example, everybody got a 500 euro budget to basically upgrade their work from home setup. And um, we have moved a lot of things we otherwise do face to face. We've moved, moved them uh, to kind of online virtual formats, um, like our Monday morning stand up, for example. Or we even have a kind of a beer or clock at Friday evening where people hang around and kind of have a drink together in front of how the, come that i've screen. never been invited to that one <laughs> <laughs> it's internal loss. yeah it's yeah internal. i know i know <laughs> <laughs> and uh so we can we have learned over the last few months how to how to deal with that and um, yeah i expect um my management team and nai nai chang to have that discussion this summer what does it mean going forward do we want to do way more work from home going forward and how do we mix work from home and being present in the office in, in the long run. Yeah, that's the reason I wanted to ask that question, because a lot of studios uh, are asking themselves the same questions right now. How do we deal with that? And uh, as far as I'm concerned so far, the complex part seems to be where 
you have to mix office presence and people working from home mm -hmm. and making yep. sure you have the same level of collaboration going on. And so far, everybody I talked to um, told me that, you know, it's relatively easy when everybody's in the office and it's relatively easy when everybody's at home. Now they have the setups running, but as soon as you mix it, it gets challenging. But uh, especially the situation right now and potentially also the future situation will call for that and uh, I think it's going to be very exciting to see how companies like Buga and others come up with solutions to tackle that challenge hmm. yeah at the moment we have the office open for those who want to be there and we have between 10% to 20% of employees in the office at the moment and at the moment we say it's the responsibility of those in the office to make sure Uh, those working from home have all of the information and can partip participate in every discussion. Um, and it works well. Um, I think the, the bigger challenge will come if, let's say, 50, 60, 70% of people or 80% of people are in the office. Then that's the really difficult part. Yeah, I would agree. So you mentioned, um, uh, we talked about the, the, the COVID-19 situation that you need, um, you know, responsible uh, or individually responsible people to make sure that uh, collaboration works. Moving from that to like the little bit of the social responsibility topic, um, you mentioned a while ago when we talked uh, that there are certain initiatives that the team at Vuga cares about a lot and one of them mm -hmm. being climate change, for example. So I'm curious, could you share some more on what the team is doing regarding those initiatives mm -hmm. and maybe mm -hmm. even give some recommendations how other companies could contribute to either that cause or their favorite causes and how they can mm -hmm. make yeah. an impact. Yeah, we have, so we have worked and supported on a number of courses over the years. Um, and I will talk about climate change more in a minute. Uh, some of the others were around increasing diversity in the games industry. So, um, We hosted an event or co-hosted together with a few others <clears throat> at Gamescom called uh, Gamers uh, Night, right? So gay, like for gay people, but also non-gay people were invited. And um, we have done a number of things to try to increase the share of women working in the games industry because it's so low. I'm very happy that for the young people working at Vuga, so those born in the 90s, We're now at 50-50, uh, 50-50 female male uh, for those that we hire. But for those born, let's say, in the 80s, 70s or 60s, the male share still is much higher. Are you actively at least doing making... something about this? I mean, uh, if you're, like when you hire people, are you actively trying to hire in a way that it's more mm -hmm. balanced or yes. is that just naturally happening? No, um, I think if you just rely on this naturally happening, then it's not it's not happening. So, what we did is um, we did um, trainings uh, around unconscious bias. Um, that's one part. The second is to make sure your hiring panel consists of people from a diverse background, so men and women, um, and ideally also people from different cultural backgrounds and. Um, different, maybe also um, kind of more diverse, more diverse hiring panels. And the third is that um, when we do interviews, we uh, assign topics to interviewees. So let's say uh, one person would interview the person and focus mostly on uh, are they fit to the VUGA culture and one person would more focus on hard skills and one person would more focus on um, how they are. Uh, um, kind of how their project management uh, abilities are, if that's important for the job. And one would maybe 
focus on how um, they deal in stress situations, etc. And then we have example questions one could ask. And by doing that, um, you ensure that you ask similar questions to different candidates. And um, all of this helps to make sure to overcome kind of unconscious bias. So I think that's uh, that's key things. And then on the sourcing uh, candidates, we tell our recruiters that we want candidates from multiple backgrounds. So if uh, we have an open position and all we get are white men as candidates, then um, we have a chat with the recruiter. Why Why is that? What can we do to make sure we also get candidates from different backgrounds? So um, we do all of those things and uh, we do them since multiple years. And that over time um, makes the team more diverse. And as your team gets more diverse, your hiring panels get more diverse and that increases it. So it's, it's kind of a self... Uh, fulfilling or kind of self-reinforcing uh, uh, cycle. And um, yeah, this is just one of the things we've done. Um, but uh, um, yeah, you I, asked I, me about I really like change, that because it's, kind of, it's yeah. kind of a challenge before we get to climate change. There's one thing I wanted to, <laughs> to comment that because it's a, it's a challenge that obviously we have in the games industry, not only in Europe, but um, pretty much globally, um, that unfortunately there's still many companies out there with um, not really diverse teams, even though it's proven again and again that diverse teams lead to better outcomes, regardless of whether you work in the mobile space or whether you work on console development. I mean, yeah. there, there definitely is a huge advantage of having um, diverse teams in regards to everything that is part of, uh, of diversity. So um, I think it is and, very important to emphasize what you just said, that you have to work and, and, on, on, on those topics. And maybe one more thing I want to say is that uh, it's not just about the recruiting. It's also that you, um, as, 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 a, as a founder or as a manager, you need to ensure that minorities or minority groups feel safe and welcome in your company. So um, it's, it's really about if you spot um, kind of tendencies of I don't know, inappropriate language or uh, kind of sexual harassment or whatever it may be, address it head on and address it proactively and early and seriously. Uh, that's important. And then we also encourage um, minority groups to speak up. So um, we had um, kind of formats, for example, initiated by employees, actually. Uh, we called it brownback formats, um, where we had over 100 um, employees in the auditorium as listeners and I think half a dozen or so people on stage who, this was maybe one or two years ago, where they talked about their experience of being an, kind of an outsider. So their experience of being black, their experience of being lesbian or gay or <clears throat> and what that did in their life and how they have been treated in life and speaking up very openly and uh, often with tears in their eyes and that sharing those stories created empathy uh, um, on the the listeners on oh wow this <clears throat> racial discrimination is really happening um, but, but I as a white German man never see it and never experience it and I think all of those things are important it's not just about one measure you you need to really look at the overall picture and then it makes your team more diverse and by making your team more diverse i think it re results in in better outcomes and more business success i think what you're doing there is, is really fascinating um to be honest I, I haven't heard of 
many other companies that do the same thing. And I think it requires also a lot of courage from your employees to be on stage and share their stories and obviously, you know, be vulnerable and open themselves up to, you know, potential reactions um, from, from others. So did you work on something like, um, you know, psychological safety so that people can feel safe in the, in, you know, in this environment? Uh, did you do something particular there? Not exactly as you describe it. I think it's more that this um, feeling safe and being part um, of a safe environment comes from the the combined actions that yeah. I just described. So it was a number of years ago, maybe five years ago or so, that I kind of self-reflected on where we were as a company and We were internationally diverse. We were around 40 nations, but still we had maybe 25% only female uh, employees. And most of those were working in functions like HR or marketing <coughs> or let's say community management, customer care, finance. Um, but in the actual game teams, the share was even much lower and even much lower in engineering. And um We didn't have many people openly speaking up that they were gay, etc. And um, therefore, a number of years ago, um, we, we started an initiative to increase diversity. And um, it takes a number of years, but it, but it's worth it. Yeah, I would fully agree. And I wish there were more companies out there that would actually, you know, pay close attention to, um, you know, what's going on within their companies and how they can, uh, you know, achieve some of the things that you've already been working on and you were describing. So thanks for sharing this. I really think is, uh, you know, very important for our industry to think about these issues. Uh, talking about the original issue that we wanted to tackle, <laughs> climate change. I mean, yeah. you know, tell me something about what you do there. Um, so as a company, uh, it, it really came up, I would say, from employees. Um, I think around maybe especially over the last one and a half years or so, especially with Greta Thunberg and, and her drive, um, it, it was that, okay, what is VUGA doing uh, to tackle and to address climate change and what can we do to improve? Um, and we have done um, kind of a number of kind of what I would call kind of quick fixes <laughs> or immediate uh, fixes. So, for example, replacing the lights in our office with LED and um, the food that we have in our kitchen, sourcing that more from regional sources and more um, ecological sources and switching our electricity provider to um, only come from renewable energy and Then we had, well, thousands of water bottles every week uh, delivered to our, our office and taken back. And we have um, now, we're not doing that anymore. And we have water dispensers with filters. And you can also get um, kind of sparkling water from that. So this is something we did over the last few months of um, kind of doing the immediate quick fixes. Um, and then <clears throat> over the last couple of months, what we did is um, that... Uh, we started a, a request to employees and said, hey, in terms of social responsibility and corporate social responsibility, we want to select one cause that we are focusing on. 
And this could be anything. It could be climate change. It could be helping the poor. It could be uh, children that are disadvantaged, etc., etc. We we didn't limit it. We asked people to submit ideas, and they did. And we got a few dozen ideas. And then in the end, we drilled it down to um, a short list um, of of eleven. And then there was a voting of uh, what is the kind of social responsibility cause. VUGA should focus on mostly going forward. And um, the winner of that voting very clearly has been climate change. And um, we just did the voting, just finished a few days ago. And um, the result of that now is that, okay, this is the focus. Uh, now for us, we will put most of our energy going forward <clears throat> into addressing climate change. And this is things like Uh, really becoming a carbon neutral company, for example, but also um, educating our players. So we have millions of players, obviously, educating our players to uh, understand climate change better and what they can do in their life to um, help fight climate change. So that's what we do um, as a company. Do you and, uh, um, yeah. use or do you kind of combine some of those efforts with other companies in the Platika family or is that mostly driven by Vuga? <clears throat> I think on climate change, we are maybe at the forefront um, of uh, what is happening in the Platika group. So, um, I mean, Platika has over a dozen uh, offices all around the world and different Things are different in different uh, countries and in different locations. And um, here in Berlin, I think over the last couple of years, climate change has been a big topic. And therefore, I believe it's also quite won the voting. And I hope that we can um, drive something forward there that hopefully others in the Platika group will be inspired by. Um, and then other parts <coughs> of Platika are doing other initiatives. So, for example, in Israel, Platika is doing a lot to um, kind of support poor, support with food, support kind of families. I mean, would you say that um, it's part of a, you know, company in an industry or part of the mission of a company in an industry like ours that is, um, you know, trying to be more diverse and also show social responsibility to do something in that regard? Do you see this on the rise? Do you see more companies, um, you know, having their employees uh, commit to a certain cause and, and support it? Um, yes, definitely. And I also see different expectations from um, younger generations of um, employees. So um, if I compare kind of what's important to, let's say, a millennial, uh, I think that term is a bit overused, but <laughs> let's say... I recently learned that I think people born in 1981 are still considered millennials. So uh, yeah, I was quite surprised. I, sure. I was born 1980. So I was like, <laughs> am I a millennial or not? I, I never saw myself <laughs> as one. But <laughs> hey. Yeah. So... Um, I, I see that uh, people born in the or employees born, let's say, in the 90s uh, often have um, different interests and a different focus than, let's say, employees born in the 70s. Um, obviously, that's generalizing and individually it varies a lot. But um, the, the kind of stereotypical expectation from a job from a few decades ago, it's about having a career. It's about career progression, about uh, kind of climbing the corporate ladder to having a bigger title, more status and more more salary 
It's still relevant, of course, but it also comes with employees say they want to work for a company that is having a positive impact on society and not a negative one and that takes its responsibility seriously and uh, that uh, is thinking about the overall impact it's having. And um, this is something that, therefore, I think if you do it as a company, it benefits you. It benefits you also in terms of um, the uh, kind of attracting employees. But I think it's not just about that. I think it's also that we as founders or we as CEOs, we have a responsibility to um, leave the world to our children in ideally a better place and a better spot and a better uh, shape than uh, we were born into. And um, uh, the world and our life is about much, much more than just making money. And uh, therefore, this is also really important to me. I agree. I and mean, I really like the way you see that. And uh, I can only you know, confirm that um, when you talk to people that are maybe on the younger side, you know, when they join the games industry, also from my experience, uh, you know, they're looking more and more for that because they not only want to make great games, but they want to do it together with people that care about, you know, the planet and the team they work with yep. and uh, yep. and the impact they make. So uh, I can definitely yep. also see that uh, things are changing there. And I think yep. it's very important. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why my first business angel investment um, also is in a app that helps to find uh, or to fight climate change. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. Can you, can you disclose more or not? Yes. Yeah. 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 So um, <clears throat> I made the investment at the end of last year um, end of 2019 and Uh, the app is called uh, Klima or Klima, uh, very straightforward, and it's um, an app for consumers. Will launch sometime later this summer, summer of 2020, and you will go in there, um, answer a few questions. It will calculate your CO2 footprint and um, help you to reduce your CO2 footprint. But you can also financially support projects to um, offset your carbon footprint. Uh, for example, it could be about growing trees or uh, technological innovation that filters CO2 from the atmosphere or helping to reduce um, the carbon footprint in developing countries, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the team that built it, I know them since many years, they have a really, really good feel for um, user experience. And um, uh, a lot of these um, websites where you can calculate your CO2 footprint, it, it feels like filling in your taxes. Um, yeah. And... <laughs> It's, it's kind of not very appealing and, and sometimes really boring. And um, this is really what the team does really, really well. Uh, very visual, using a lot of videos, uh, very appealing. And I hope that thereby it can become um, a mass product and uh, Climber as an app, um, not just in Germany, but also in other countries can have an impact. Oh, so sounds, that's why I invested. Sounds, sounds really great. I can certainly understand why you chose that. Um, you know, as a cause you wanted to invest in. And I agree with you regarding the UX topic, you know, it's always underestimated when you create something like that. I've seen like so many services in recent years where people were, you know, trying to build something uh, that contributes to a good cause, but, uh, and the idea was great, but they kind of failed at the execution uh, where people simply didn't want to use it. And I guess us coming from the games uh, environment, we know how important it is to actually, you know, have a mm. product that you enjoy using. So you know, I yeah. guess in that case, it's a good match, I would say. Yeah, if you if you build a free to play game, um, and the first minute is bad, you've already lost all of your players. <laughs> Absolutely, that is actually the perfect transition to free to play because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, so 
obviously, I mean, it's it's hard after you know the cultural topics and all those um, you know topics about social responsibility to go back to business. But I guess we got to talk a little bit about that because you have tremendous experience in that field, and um, I, I always need to ask somebody with your experience how you see the market evolve, especially in your mm -hmm. case, the free to play market. Mm -hmm. And do you currently? recognize any trends um, or what do you think are relevant success factors these days if you want to make a free-to-play game in particular or maybe games in general yeah yeah so um, i think i can speak mostly about free-to-play because um, that is the the model we have followed over all of our history over those 11 years and um, we have also evolved and learned as a company and i think uh, we're much better at it than we used to be and <clears throat> when we started Vuga, we, we tried to be open to the free-to-play mindset, but we hadn't understood it uh, deeply uh, in the beginning. So maybe if you if you make a, just to make an analogy, let's say you make a console game, a, a 50 euro full price AAA console game, and the first half an hour of gameplay or so is kind of a bit challenging and maybe not so great, or it's hard to understand, it's difficult to understand what, what everything is about. Um, that's usually still okay because your players will not give up, right? They just spent 50 euros for it. They yep. will not give up. Definitely. Um, and if, if after that the game becomes the best game ever, um, and then let's say it's over after 20 hours of gameplay and there's no multiplayer mode, it's only single player, that's usually still fine because um, you played one of the best games in your life. You will tell all of your friends about it. All of the reviews uh, in the media will be positive. Metacritic score will be high. And then <clears throat> if in two or three years, part two comes out, you will buy it again. And uh, if you do anything of that in a free-to-play game, you're toast. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. Right? People download a free-to-play game as kind of a, ah, let me see what this is about, with the expectation of, um, in 50-50 if they will even uh, really give it a chance or delete it. So if your first minute is difficult, you have no chance. Um, so you need to kind of win players over right away. And then if your game obviously is over after 20 hours, uh, you're also toast because the, the value, if you want to be competitive in the free-to-play market, it's really about keeping players playing for years. Um, it's not just about keeping them playing for weeks. It's really about those loyal players you have. You need to convince them to play for years. And if you have a content-driven game, this means you have to provide content and create content for years to come. And um, these are just the basic. These are just the fundamentals. And when we started VUGA, we didn't understand that. So we launched a game in 2010 called Bubble Island. It was a bubble shooting game. And it exploded on Facebook, became one of the most successful Facebook games right away. And we did something innovative there, um, I think, for um, uh, games back in the day. We, we created a map. And on that map for this puzzle game, for this bubble shooting game, you had level one, level two, level three. And when you won level one, you moved to level two. And, and kind of the next level was unlocked in a kind of free-to-play Facebook game. That's really on a visual map really hasn't been done before in that case. And obviously later King with Candy Crush and others, the whole business <laughs> yeah. was kind of based on that, but but we were early. But um, we were not yet ready for the free-to-play mindset. The game had, I think, 60 levels and every level got more difficult. And um, after that, it ended. 
And obviously it ended. Every every game had an end, right? If you think of 2010, every game that relies on content has an end. You you start it and then you play through the single player campaign and then you, it ends. And um, then we added a kind of a tournament mode, kind of multiplayer tournament mode. Uh, that was very successful. We we thought, hey, uh, that's that's how you do it. But that tournament mode wasn't as appealing as kind of the single player progression, at least not to the casual players. And we have really missed a huge opportunity there. And King came in later and understood, well, actually, no, it's not about making every level more difficult than the previous one, but you find your difficulty level and then one level is a bit easier and one is a bit harder, but kind of, and then you just do 20 new levels every week. Yeah. And you do that for eight years or 10 years. Do you, do you think one of the um, mistakes maybe you made then when you talked about the multiplayer feature was that it was probably not targeted at the community that enjoyed the game, which was expecting the single player experience? Yeah, it was also too boring. It was too repetitive. It was basically just uh, you played the same level over and over again, and then you got a score, and it was just about who has the highest score okay. uh, that week. And it was just too boring. It was okay, but was too boring. And we were not open-minded enough to do it. What what then puzzle games did basically one or two years later, uh, around 2011, 2012, of um, a huge variety of levels and um, every week you produce 20 more levels and um, this is something we didn't understand uh, back then and we were not open-minded enough to to even consider this it was kind of obvious that the game would have an end the single player mode obviously would have an end i mean who would be so crazy to employ dozens of employees who do nothing else than creating new content and doing that for 10 years i mean doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> well, it, it, I would say originally it didn't sound like it makes sense, but uh, it's a discussion that, funny enough, I've had like many no. times throughout the, the last years. Everybody was like, oh, we can't create content all the time. It's so expensive. Yeah. And why would we have a team to do this? But then if you have the right framework in place and if you have the right uh, you know, pipeline for that, I would say, then uh, yeah. this can actually make or break your, your game and yeah, success yeah. over many yeah. years. It took us a few years to understand that. It took us a few years to understand that. And now... If we look at um, our biggest game, June's Journey, um, we are now at a point where we, we have these chapters. And um, a chapter uh, takes an average player needs about one week to play a chapter. And if you are an intense player, it's a bit quicker. And one of these chapters is in the ballpark of roughly 1,600 hours of work. Is one chapter, so it, it's uh, it's about forty people working on it for for a week. Uh, forty people working on it, forty hours each, and it consists of six locations, hand-drawn locations, a new character, a thousand words of dialogue in fifteen languages, animations, cutscenes, etc. And um, this is a chapter. And June's journey now is, I think, at chapter one hundred and sixty, and we launch a new chapter every Thursday. So that means your hardcore committed players, they probably, once the chapter is launched, they play through like in, I don't know, four or five days and then, you know, they wait for yeah. the next one. Yeah. Or even two or three days. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and because, um, and when you play through it, what you see on the screen, new chapter coming in three days, seven hours, 25 minutes and 43 seconds. And you, see, you have a timer going down. And when it reaches zero, the new chapter is available. And um, since 150 chapters, so since uh, well, since 160 chapters, so since three years, 
we have never missed it. Wow. That's pretty, pretty impressive. How many chapters yeah. do you keep on like on the, on the back burner? So how many do you keep in store to be released? What's, what's, what does that look like? Yeah, it took us multiple years to basically get this pipeline to a shape where we can actually do this. Um, it was not an overnight thing. Uh, it really took us multiple years of effort. Yeah, I can imagine. And now the writing happens roughly six months before the, the things are in the game. Mm -hmm. And then um, we, we obviously, then there's the art production and all of the things and the quality assurance. And in a kind of a normal phase, we maybe have three or four weeks of buffer. So we have maybe three weeks of uh, the chapter is ready and sitting on the server. And uh, we we have, even if everybody now would get uh, sick for three weeks, we would still deliver. But there have been times where this got shorter. So uh, the cr longer Christmas vacation or uh, flu season or things like this, where then the buffer sometimes got down to a couple of days. So that means you always have to stay on the tip of your toes to make sure that you yes. know you have yeah. something it can yeah. release because you don't want to disappoint the player yeah. community. And, and sometimes, and sometimes uh, we we delayed the release of a feature because those people working on a new gameplay feature or a new meta game feature uh, were instead pulled to ensure the content delivery is happening. Yeah. So. Is that the same for um, pretty much all your games? I mean, you're talking about June's Journey mainly, the biggest one. Um, same? Do you use the same principle, the same pipeline for your other titles? Um, yes, it's similar. June's Journey is now the most extreme. So um, the, the game had a predecessor. It called, it's called Pearl's Peril. It launched 2013. It's our second biggest game still, so it's seven years old, but it's the second biggest game in terms of daily active users and revenue. And there, we also had these weekly chapters and a similar effort to create them. And there, after 90 chapters, we said, okay, this is enough now because we have diminishing returns. Because to, to play chapter 90, you have to finish chapter 80, 89, and to finish chapter 89, you have to finish chapter 88, etc. And even if you are a quite committed player, you need one year to play these 90 chapters. And even after you're finished, um, you can do other things in the game. Um, so, yeah, one year of content, I mean, that's more than enough. Who would play a free-to-play mobile game more than a year? Well, <laughs> that was our thinking in 2013, My wife does. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, now, of course, right? But, but we thought, yes, some people will, some people will, but we thought the number would be too small and the game wouldn't be big enough to justify that, right? Because you, you have tens of thousands of dollars of costs for each chapter and it wouldn't be justified to, to continue doing yeah. that. And we underestimated back then the success of the game. So the, ga the game became more successful than we thought it would. And um, we, we kind of stopped content production too early. And uh, this is a mistake that we corrected by the successor a few years later by um, the game June's Journey. Well, to some extent, I would say it's probably kind of a luxury problem a little bit. <laughs> you know, I, I guess there's a lot of developers out there that would love to have this problem of the game getting more successful than originally anticipated. But yeah. obviously it was causing challenges for you. I can certainly understand that. And I, I think, I mean, you asked me a few minutes ago about bigger trends uh, in the market. And I think this is actually one of the bigger trends that we have fewer games that become really, really big. Because what happens is um, if you have a game uh, and you have a ton of content, then this means your most loyal players will play your game for longer. 
This increases your lifetime value, which means you can afford a, a higher cost per install on the marketing yeah. side. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. So if you're if you have a small game and you can't afford the investment to create a huge amount of content, then probably your lifetime value is lower. Therefore, you can't pay as much in marketing and therefore the game will stay smaller. And um, this is just one aspect. The other aspects are around events and features and many other things that we can also talk about if you want. But this is one of the reasons why there are fewer games that are really huge and um, why it's um, you need to be really, really creative if you don't have these resources to break into the market. You have to find your niche or do something different. Yeah, that's actually what I wanted to, to ask about. Um, what would you say to a small team trying to get into the free-to-play space with their game that might be good at its core, but they don't have the resources like you described to build a lot of content in advance? So what should they focus on? Is there a general piece of advice that you could give? Um, yeah, do something different. So I think if you, if you look at a very, very successful game and you say, Hey, we will do this, but slightly different or just slightly improved. Usually you have no chance because that established game that is very successful has dozens of people working on it and they are constantly making better and constantly improving it. And then let's say you come out and you get some, some traction They will look at you and say, oh, if it's just a small tweak, we can also add that to our game. Um, and then uh, that established game, usually the company has a lot of money to spend on marketing. So kind of breaking through is really hard, especially because creation of a new game, it may create, it may take one year, but it could also take three years up to that point. Um, you, the, 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 the game you're competing with has also evolved a lot. So that's usually not a good place to be. So my opinion is, um, go in, do something radically different or go into a niche that others think is not really so valuable. <laughs> so I think this is what has helped, has worked for us. So in hidden object games, um, this was considered, um, a genre, very niche quite small, um, maybe a hundred million dollars per year worldwide market where let's say puzzle games like uh, Candy Crush and Gardenscapes are 10 billion a year. So kind of 1% of the size, uh, this was a few years ago, right? 1% of the size of uh, um, these huge genres. And But the effort is higher. <laughs> so you go into a genre that's smaller, but the effort to create content is higher. That's kind of ridiculous. And um, But what we saw is that there were some games with some success um, or yeah, some success that were not great. And we thought, hey, we, we have a high focus on quality. We want to make the best games possible. Um, so we will go in and just create a much, much, much better product and much better title. And um, this has worked really well for us. But it could also be that you go into an established genre and you do something very different. Um, so, uh, I mean, when Candy Crush was huge and Playrix came in with Gardenscapes, uh, Gardenscapes was really different, very high quality and very polished, but also very different. And um, Yeah, that's what I just wanted you, to, to mention. It's one of the examples that I know where, you know, somebody 
broke into an existing genre and had like very decent success. Um, and it's now it, number one, you know? And it's now number one, but it it rarely happens, I think. That's why a lot of people, you know, when I talk to, uh, you know, small development teams and usually they uh, say like, hey, we're going to do something like this, but, you know, just a little bit different. And then it's it's usually the chances are like, I don't know, what one in a thousand, one in a 10,000 10, that they actually make mm -hmm. it there. Um, so uh, I really think it's very valuable advice from you to say, hey, look at the look at your own niche that you find and how do you position yourself in there and yeah. what, what can you deliver that nobody else does. Yeah, yeah, it could be really something new and very different or kind of an established genre where things are just bad. <laughs> so this is, uh, I think, when, when Supercell brought out Heyday, there were lots of farming games out there, but Heyday was the first one that was really, really good. Yeah. And uh, Clash of Clans was also much better than For example, Backyard Monsters, which was back then kind of one of the more successful games. But um, this was many, many years ago. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy to break into a new genre. And then if you break into it, then obviously you have all of the things you need to do around creating events and uh, keeping the game fresh and ensuring there's something new happening every single day. And this is something we have only learned, I think, over the last couple of years. We were so focused on content And that was right to get the game out and to, to get the foundation. But now it's really about what do you do on top of that? Yeah, that's what actually the, it was the last um, kind of uh, focal point within free to play that I wanted to um, talk to you about anyways regarding the events that uh, you run in the community and the importance there. So, uh, I mean, personally, I have quite a bit of experience in the in the multiplayer online game segment and I know that community is everything there so if you mm. uh, play again, yeah. a game again and again you you want to have a strong community you want to play with the same people but if you look at something like um, June's Journey obviously where most of the experience is, is for you as an individual so how do you see community in, in your um, environment and uh, what role play uh, mm -hmm. uh, do events play um, for your community yeah so we initially launched the game almost three years ago, as an extremely polished, minimum viable product. So it was really just very high quality, very polished, but it was just the go from chapter to chapter to chapter and no other features. And since then, we have added a ton of features. And one of the things we added a few months ago was um, community features. Um, so we did a survey, I think last year, where we asked players in June's journey really kind of to fill out a 10, 15 minute survey. And at the end, we asked them, hey, this is optional, but if you want, uh, are you okay if we link your survey response to your in-game behavior, right? With, with data privacy, you need mm -hmm. to ask them for that. Yeah. And we got uh, 70,000, 70,000, <laughs> responses for wow. 15 minute survey with yes you can link this to my player progress and we did a deep analysis and clustering of our players in terms of what are the different player personalities and we we found that maybe a quarter or so of our players was really driven by anything competitive or um, social or interacting with others and you would expect that somebody who's really competitive and intense and wants to Uh, really engage deeply, etc., with with others, that they may show higher engagement or maybe even higher lifetime value. And in this analysis, we saw it was the worst group for us: lowest wow. retention, lowest engagement, because the game didn't offer anything. There was nothing there, and that was our drive to say, okay, we need to build social features. And and then it took about a year 
to build them. And um, we we launched them a couple of months ago. And what what it offers is there is uh, there are features inside June's journey where you um, can join something basically like a club, and um, you can team up with other players. You can as a team compete with other teams to complete challenges. So it's still a little bit of you, you play the core loop, but then uh, the achievements are counted as a team. And then there are now features coming around leagues where you can compete in a league and then you can advance from the bronze league to the silver league to the gold league, etc. So we looked a lot into uh, and then there are special items you can win and you can only win these items uh, from these multiplayer features. There's no other way to get them inside the game. So we really looked into what are other companies doing, especially in the uh, kind of more core game space, and what of that can we transfer so that casual players, uh, 50-year-old American women, um, to be stereotypical about our average <laughs> player, um, will enjoy it and will engage with it. Cool. Well, Jens, thank you so much for uh, sharing all those insights into, uh, you know, free to play, building that game, and obviously also in, you know, the history of Buga and uh, what you and the team care about deeply. I think there were, was a lot of very valuable information for our listeners in there. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited to have the chance to talk to you about this. So uh, thank you again very, very much for uh, joining me today. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to obviously seeing how your journey continues and uh, potentially at some point we will have another episode where we you know give our <laughs> listeners an update so thank you very much again Jens thank you Lars thank you thank you for listening to a DevCom podcast produced by Sven Fossing executive producer Stefan Reichart music by weloveindies.com supported by Bayer Dynamic High-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany.